I'm Ophira Eisberg from Ask Me Another. Every week we play nerdy games with contestants and celebrities. Hear Patrick Stewart dramatically read Taylor Swift lyrics or learn how many quills there are on a porcupine. Find Ask Me Another on the NPR One app or wherever you get podcasts. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. I'm Jesse Thorne. Ask anyone who's made a career out of making music, and they'll probably tell you the same thing. The first time you go on tour, it kind of stinks. I mean, sure, you're on a big, long road trip with your friends, you're meeting new people, but you're also stuck in a messed-up car for hours and hours and hours. You're sleeping on couches and floors. You're eating bananas, stale pita chips. Open Mike Eagle is a rapper, and for him, it was all that and more. He remembers the low point on his first tour, too. He just rolled up to Vancouver. He didn't really know anybody, and he needed a place to stay. I, like, got a hotel on Hotels.com, and I was in a street called Hastings Street in Vancouver. Do you know about that place? You couldn't have told me it wasn't the meth capital of the world. These hotel rooms were not used for people sleeping. They were used for people to rent and do meth. Hotels.com didn't want to tell me that, though. They wanted me to give my money to this person. It was like, you want to you wanna sleep here? He was surprised. It's Bullseye. Coming up, my conversation with Open Mike Eagle. He's done pretty well for himself since then. He's put out six records. He's been featured on a bunch more. He's got his own Comedy Central show coming up. The person who convinced him to go for it? His wife, dummy. But yeah, she was like, no, you should just get on unemployment and try out the music thing. I was like, for real? (laughs) And take it from Mike. Don't be afraid to dream big. I had a, a small goal. Well, oh, I had actually a lofty goal of a television show getting in, in, you know, NPR, and that happened. Yeah, bullseyes where dreams come true. Then we've got comedian, writer, and NPR favorite Paula Poundstone on the movie that she wishes she'd made. That's all coming up on Bullseye. Let's go. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I guess you could call Open Mike Eagle a rapper on the rise, but it's been a really long, steady, unique rise. He was born in Chicago, moved to L.A. later on. For the first part of his adult life, he was a teacher. He actually didn't release his first album until he was almost 30. In his rhymes, there's humor, which you see a lot in rap, but it's weirder and kind of self-deprecating at times, too. Like the first album he put out was called Unapologetic Art Rap. Kind of a power play, right? Anyway, everything's coming up Eagle now. He co-hosts the podcast Tights and Fights. It's a wrestling podcast here at Max Fun. He's also just been given his first ever TV show by Comedy Central. That's in the works right now. Mike's latest album dropped a couple of weeks ago. It's called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. It's really great. Let's take a listen to Brick Body Complex, the first single off the record. Don't call me a rapper, my mother. My name is Michael Eagle, I'm sovereign, I'm from a line of ghetto superheroes, I holler, I got something to bring to your attention, 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 I promise you I will never 
fulfilling your descriptions. I'm dying, don't let nobody tell you nothing different. They lying, a giant in my body is a building, a building, a building, a building. No services underground, no sound when I'm calling home. City broken, my brother's down. Now I'm standing here all alone. Somewhere that my monochrome and my hollow. Open Mike Eagle, welcome to Bullseye. It's great to have you on the show. Uh, thanks for having me, man. I've been um, hovering around the show audio-wise for a long time. <laughs> well, I read an interview that you did maybe, I'm going to say two years ago. Mm-hmm. And the grand finale was you saying that um, you needed to get a TV show and an interview on NPR. Yeah. Well, you got a TV show and an hey, interview on NPR. That's good. We I'm, just filled it in. Congratulations on the TV show. Thanks. I need people to remind me of things I've said more <laughs> so I can I can feel my growth that way. It is a terrifying thing to try and try and get enough perspective on your own life to yeah. appreciate the fact that you are, for example, I mean in in your case, making a living and supporting a family in part. Yeah. By, by making music, for example. Yeah, you know, I've been really good about being able to be very aware of that as a as a benchmark and a thing, especially since, like, you know, 70% of the guys I started with and I still see all the time haven't been able to make that transition. Um, so, you know, it's not something that I lose I lose sight of, but it's like the... It's not the financial ones. It's like the ones that actually make me feel better. Those are the ones I have to remember. What are the ones that actually make you feel better? Like like that. Like I had a, a small goal. Well, I had actually a lofty goal of a television show and getting an interview on NPR, and that happened. And I'm like, oh, that's nice to think that I worked along my weird path and got to the places I was trying to go. Because I often, I often end up um, I have the bad thoughts a lot. Because I had a lot of weird expectations coming into making music and trying to sell it to people. I, I had a I had a lot of weird expectations about where I would, how I would emerge into the marketplace and the culture. These very lofty, strange ideas, and um, you know. Well, I mean, I think that you have the disadvantage of emerging as a hip hop artist at exactly the time that being an ind- independent hip hop artist was. It's most difficult. Yeah, I mean, you terrible. hear the you hear these stories about guys in 1999 just hanging out every day with a stack of 12 inches outside Fat Beats sure. Records, selling 112 inches a day while they stand there in freestyle, and then making a hundred thousand dollars a year or whatever. Yeah, and and I know a lot of those guys and those same guys. There were enough small independent rap labels in places like L.A. and the Bay and, and a few other places where. These guys were also getting 30 grand advances two, three times a year to make albums. And all of that went away when people stopped buying physical media at the rate that they were. So, Mike, you're very old to mm-hmm. be uh Oh, it's true. Hot young rapper. It is so true. Um, so what is different about your career path from those guys that you were rapping with in, you know, uh, 2002? Or 2004, who have jobs now. Well, even then I was old is one thing. Um, The guys I was rapping with, you know, in the early aughts, like I had gone to college already. I already had a bachelor's degree even before I got out here and started really seriously making music. I had had life, had a lot of life already. 
Uh, and so when I came into it, I knew that, you know, it took a lot of skill. It took a lot of acumen musically. And I didn't have all of that. I had the basics. I was a street corner rapper. I was a freestyle guy. I just didn't have anything to sell. But I was a freestyle on the corner, battle in the streets, rapper. That's what I was raised in rap to be. But when I decided to try to understand how the career part of it worked, I was bringing the skill set of somebody who, you know, graduated university, really with no support, you know. So, like, me knowing how to email a person sensibly, <laughs> you know, like, that actually put some distance between me and a lot of my peers is that, like, I had the tiniest bit of organizational skills and, and could kind of see forward that way. I used to... um I, I called it intern at a place called Project Bloat Records. Uh, Project Bloat, of course, being a long-running event. I know you were listening to some freestyle fellowship yeah. earlier today. <laughs> remembering, remembering high school fondly. <laughs> um, freestyle fellowship, of course, being the founders of the Project Blow, the long-running open mic in L.A. that I moved here and kind of embedded myself in. But at that time, they also had a record label. They had an office like around the corner from where the event was held. And I would just go there all the time. Like I had a day job on my lunches. I would go to that office after work uh, any night that there were people around. I would just be in there constantly trying to like understand what the particular moves of an independent rapper was if that was their career. Like, So they taught me how to call up Amoeba or Rasputin and get them to try to buy copies of the new album. And at that that point, it, they were just taking things on consignment. Like, it was, it, the market was already crashing. But they just, they laid out all of those skills. I used to go on tour with guys and just do their merch, just so I could watch and see and understand how everything worked. So the organizational skills, and I, th I think just me having a little bit more of a sense of pop culture outside of rap, I leaned on that pretty heavily, too, in terms of my content. I think a lot of people, especially in hip-hop and, you know, in, in other kinds of pop music as well, if they're not a professional at 25, right. huh. it's over. Right. Wow. Yeah. I mean, how old is Chance the Rapper? He's like 22 or I something no like that. I have no idea how old any of those people <laughs> 21, are. 21, 22 years All old. All those young rich men have the oldest souls, <laughs> and you can just see it in their eyes. I don't know. I don't I, – I'm fascinated by – what those people's lives must like their brains must be like but when you were 25 did you feel that way like did you look around you and say like oh a lot of these dudes getting signed are 19 and uh i never really looked at getting quote unquote signed that way like that was never really part of my path was getting signed to like a major because that was always especially when i was 25 there was zero room to be a weird rapper on that level. So I was following the path of independent artists who were already around. I was following Bus Driver and AC Alone and Abstract Root, like literally following them on tour, you know. So I didn't feel the age thing then like I do now because now the playing field is leveled in so many ways. The weirdness is leveled in so many ways that like Age is a little bit more pronounced to me. It's a difference now than it was then. And also, I keep getting older. So, Let's hear some more music from my guest, Open Mike Eagle, and his brand new album, which is called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. This is called 95 Radios. Mm -hmm. 
Drove all through the neighborhood, sitting in a car all day, trying to find a radio. And we wrapped both hands in tinfoil, pointed at the window frame, trying to find a radio. All up in my grandma's basement, sliding all the closet doors, trying to find a radio. And the homies say they heard a rap song, sounded like some folks they know. But we couldn't find a radio The old me would drink a 40 and eat bologna Shinobi on NBA Live, I play with Kobe The OGs, I miss my old hood, miss my homies, it's lonely The radio hosts, it's like they know me The ocean, with the seashell, that's how we're floating Was hoping to hear the airwaves What were you like in high school? Uh, depends on when we're talking I came into it very lost I was very lost in early in high school. Did you get lost in middle school? I got lost in the fourth grade when I uh, got transferred out of the school I went to in the projects and went to school. I got bused to school on the north side of Chicago. I got lost that first day and didn't get unlost until like sophomore year of high school. What was the feeling that you had when you got to the north side? Uh, just suddenly, suddenly my identity just didn't exist um, I just had no footing socially to to build an identity off of. And so most of my memories uh, in middle school and and early high school was just kind of scrambling for something to hold on to. Because you get there and you don't know the rules, basically? Yeah, and a lot of it is like racial stuff. Like I went from an all-black school to a mostly white school and – I think I experienced a lot of it through that lens at first, but then thinking back about it, it was a lot more about going from a poor school to a school where a lot of kids had money. And the combination of those two things, uh, I just really never felt connected to any people there. And and when I was, there was other people who seemed to be kind of oppressed by the whole thing, either economically or socially I hung out with a lot of kids who were, like, super sad in the seventh grade when, like, Kurt Cobain died. You know what I mean? Like, I hung out with a lot of those. But also, you know, I played sports, so I had that, but also wasn't cool enough to hang with those guys because they were, like, good with girls, and I had no idea what to do with a girl um, at that point in my life, you know? So just a lot of flailing, a lot of grabbing at straws until about midway through high school. I remember that feeling in middle school of having gone I went I went to a very fancy middle school from a not fancy context <laughs> and uh getting there and being like what are these people's lives yeah. like trying to figure out what they did after school mm. <laughs> like who are these people I, they were I, all really nice too. It wasn't even that. It was like, but what is the? I remember you know, a couple times literally hanging out with kids outside of school for the first time at that level, and just being amazed. Like some, like it was like Aladdin, like a whole new world. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like kids hanging out in neighborhoods. Like I had no conception of that. Like I was very latchkey in my neighborhood because my neighborhood was hella dangerous. So there just was no conception of that at all. What happened when you went to high school? It really was, you know, as as trite as it might be to say, man, it was discovering hip-hop. It really did. It gave me uh, access to this social world that was almost completely merit-based. And that changed 
everything. And like, when you say hip hop, you, you don't necessarily mean, wow, here's a distinction I've never vocally made on this program uh, in the many years I've been doing it. You don't necessarily mean as a music, but as a culture. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, I'm KRS One. <laughs> Yeah, but I mean, you you mean like uh, you mean like the as a creative scene exactly. Like I read this book called Bomb the Suburbs. Oh, it's a great book. Yeah. Upski, Upski, yeah, I love Upski. Shout out to Up- Upski. Shout, shout out to Upski, indeed. Uh, but that book really changed my life. Like that book, a very strong thesis of that book was that you can't just listen to this music. You have to do this. If you don't do this, you're not hip hop. So that opened the doors of it being like, oh, like I can. Do this, and then I would go be around people on the south side who were doing the things, who were just like they were kids going to high school, just like me. Um, some of them were kids at my high school, and I didn't realize they did this stuff until I saw them there. And I was like, "Oh, this is it!" You know. So me and like four of these friends of mine, we all just like jumped into it head first at the same time, and kind of built ourselves up inside of that by getting good at these things. But you didn't at the time think, oh, look at that. I'm going to be uh, Twister, do or die, or <laughs> uh, those first national acts that were coming out of Chicago Crucial or conflict. even Common? <laughs> um, Common was the most accessible one. Um, and, but Rhymefest was a big deal for me. Like, Rhymefest was a guy who I would see at these places rapping. I battled Rhymefest once. like, And I would listen to WHBK, which was the college uh, station that had the three hip-hop shows that came on per week. They would get all the New York stuff, get all the West Coast underground stuff and play it. Um, and he would be on there freestyling, you know, like, oh, my God, this guy, I know that guy. He's on the radio rapping. Oh, my goodness. And and he was having projects come out that I could buy at the record store alongside Common and Lords of the Underground, whatever else I was buying at that time. And that that is really kind of what opened it up. Like, the career path was unfolding that way, not like, you know, go to L.A. and get signed on Relativity Records or anything like that, you know. We'll have more from Open Mike Eagle coming up. He was a school teacher, and he got laid off, and he had to sit down with his wife, and and his wife basically just said, Mike, you got laid off from being a teacher. You're a rapper now. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from 2020, where creatives get inspiring, authentic stock photos. Unlike traditional staged stock photos, 2020 has millions of real-world images your audience will actually engage with, all under a simple royalty-free license. Today, 2020 is offering Bullseye listeners a seven-day free trial of five photos. Monthly subscription begins after seven days. To start your trial, go to 220.com slash bullseye. Hey, once you're done listening to Bullseye, check out this week's Car Talk podcast. It's where America turns for marital advice, psychological analysis, scientific theory, brotherly insults, and even some occasional car advice. If you need to feel better about the world, and don't we all, spend an hour with Click and Clack on this week's Car Talk podcast. Listen on the NPR One app and at npr.org slash podcasts. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. I'm talking with Open Mike Eagle. He's got a new album called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. It's out now. He also co-hosts Maximum Fun's wrestling podcast, Tights and Fights. 
You graduated from college and went and got a job. Yeah. And so what was the point where you thought, I'm not going to be a guy with a job. I'm going to be a guy who makes music for a living. I got laid off in 2009 from being a teacher. And and you were, what, like 20, 29 years old? Yeah, I was 28, yeah. So you're a grown-up. Mm-hmm. That year, I also got my first record deal, though. So I got signed in, like, February or March of that year to my first, like, independent deal. I got laid off in the summer. That fall, I was supposed to go on a tour, my first tour, uh, opening for Bus Driver and Abstract Rude. And when I got laid off, um, it was like a conversation at home with me and my wife. Like, you know, I, I mean, I was driving home already thinking, like, I was going to, you know, go home, get on monster.com, get on idealist.org, um, start sending the resumes out again, you know, because the way that they had let me go was real, it was real kind of foul, too, very unexpected. Like, I had this, like, big stack of paperwork to do and they kind of just waited till it was all turned in and then let me go like the next day it was it was like uh, it was it was really like ugly and it really hurt my feelings at the time and so i was really down but yeah she was like no you should just get on unemployment and try out the music thing i was like for real <laughs> and she was and she said she said yeah she was she was all for it and you know being on unemployment wasn't an easy thing to do at first because of pride and you know, you have to lie on the forms about how many jobs you <laughs> apply to every couple of weeks or whatever. But, yeah, I did that. And, you know, it did give me just enough buffer time, though, to figure out, especially when the waning independent music economy, like how to start bringing money in. And it was a good two, three-year-long process to go from when I would go out of town to do shows and be guaranteed to be losing money to, like, now... I'm, like, living off of that. Do you think that you could have done that if you weren't married at the time? Probably not because, you know, the unemployment wasn't enough. I don't think it would have been enough to have a decent apartment. So I'd had to live with somebody. Um, I would, yeah, I'd, I would have needed some support from somewhere. And I never really had support, like, family support like that before my wife. Let's hear some more music from my guest open Mike Eagle's new album called Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. Let's hear a little bit of No Selling. Gotta keep a facade, I gotta play it cool. Like when you were the girl and she could wait to school. Gonna get the leather shirt, my stomach never hurt. Strong face, strong jaw shown to my competitors. I tell my AC Allen wouldn't even limp. I keep my head up high so I can read the blimps. Don't even scream if something hot burns my fingertips. I just wait a couple seconds and I reattempt. I had a real childhood, my truth was wildhood. But crying ain't my style, cause I can smile good. I don't take shit personal, I don't get jealous. You can leave my name off, you can misspell it. I ain't with yelling, I ain't even mad. I ain't screaming, catching feelings. So that's talking about you. It's in the first person. <laughs> uh, yeah, but it's it's um, that song is uh, it's the song's called No Selling, and No Selling is a pro wrestling term. I figured I didn't know what it meant, but I thought that's probably a pro wrestling <laughs> term. <laughs> yeah, but it's like you know when when I Hulk, know about baby faces, right? Now, and it's No Selling is something a baby face does typically when they're making their comeback in a match. So let's say Hulk Hogan is fighting the Iron Sheik, and Iron Sheik is just beating his tail the entire match. Let's say it's a 20-minute match, 15-minute mark. Iron Sheik goes for something. 
And Hogan shakes it off and stares at him like it didn't hurt. That's called no selling, and that's how he starts his offense because that's how, you know, the crowd gets back into a match emotionally. It's like, oh, the good guy, he's found some inner strength. Um, But I protracted that in the song to all the instances where we kind of have to do that in life where, like, you feel something, but because of the situation or because it's somehow advantageous for you, you um, you put out some other reality of, of what you're going through. You basically, you don't, you know, you don't sell pain. And that just interests me in a, in a kind of PTSD sort of way. And, and that kind of tied into the theme of the album and stuff through all of that. Was your career success so incremental that you... That was the perfect word for it, by the way. <laughs> the best adjective ever to describe my career. Uh, was it... Um, did that leave you without crisis points where you thought this will never work? Or did it reinforce crisis points where you thought this will never work? I never think that it'll never work because it's already working. My crisis point every day is always like, is this a mistake? So I'm really high stressed right now, right? Because I got a new album. I dropped one single that people like it. You know, I got another one coming any moment now. And I'm like, is this a mistake? You know, and the thing is, a mistake for me doesn't end everything. It just makes everything a little bit harder for a while until I do something else that's not a mistake. But the whole time, like, I tend to do so much in, like, you know, different fields that it's, it, all, it all tends to be okay. You know, like, nothing uh, – the times where I thought it maybe wouldn't work was, like, that first tour I went on because I agreed to go on that tour for no money in my own car. Uh, only, uh, only, you know, just had, mer- had, like, these $5 CDs I was selling. And I was like, I – by the time we got up to Vancouver – I was like, I don't know about the rest of these dates. This is scary business. I, like, got a hotel on Hotels.com, and I was in a street called Hastings Street in Vancouver. Do you know about that place? You couldn't have told me it wasn't the meth capital of the world. (laughs) These hotel rooms were not used for people sleeping. They were used for people to rent and do meth. Hotels.com didn't want to tell me that, though. They wanted me to give my money to this person. It was like, you want to sleep here? (laughs) He was surprised. At the Frank, get a bed. Right? <laughs> oh, yeah. So you know, my my moments of crisis were more about physical danger than they were about the endeavor not really working. Because even when it works, it's not like I don't make millions. I don't, you know, I don't, I don't make a ton of money. Like I don't. I live according to my means with music. Um, I don't get large budgets to make albums with. I don't get large budgets to do anything with. And I get that because I'm not, I don't make fully sellable music. I don't do that. You know, like that's not really what I'm doing it for. You know, so like my continued existence every day is a victory in some sense. That's what I was saying earlier. Like I'm kind of always aware of it, you know. When you were in high school in 1997 and even when you were out of college in 2004, being weird in hip-hop was a really specific and narrow lane. Mm-hmm. It was a tough row to hoe. Mm-hmm. You know, you moved out to L.A. to be weird. Yeah. Um, and there was a, some roots of weirdness here. It was definitely less weird than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I thought it was going to be so much weirder. 
But like, really, I mean, you were looking at these, at a group of, I don't know, 20 people being weird, mm -hmm. 40 people maybe, you know what I mean? Including producers and stuff, yeah. you know? For sure. And now as we sit here in 2017, one of the really amazing things about hip hop is that some of the most successful rappers in the world are just the strangest birds walking. Very weird. Mm -hmm. And very much, I mean, you couldn't find a more project bloaty mm -hmm. uh, 27 year old in the world than Kendrick Lamar. Right. Absolutely. You, know, you couldn't find a more weird, personal, insane group of rappers than Odd Future. Yeah. Kanye's crazy. Uh, you know, it's yeah. Well, I mean, Kanye is sort of. I mean, I think one of the great gifts of Kanye West to the world is that he came out wearing a backpack, making Jay Z records. Right. I mean, and, and it didn't start out being a Louis Vuitton backpack. I used to. I, you know, I used to call myself art rap. That was a very reactionary term to there being zero weirdness in the market landscape at that time. Well, now, because it, as we talked about, I mean, the sort of the left of center lane mm -hmm. was completely dominated by I'm defending real hip hop, which or I'm revolutionary in this way. Mm -hmm. And both of those are very I mean, they both have made a lot of great music, but they're both narrow lanes. They're, there's not a lot. You know, there's a lot of orthodoxy in those worlds. I mean, and then, you know, so Lil Wayne happened. Yeah. And he is a very weird dude. And he started making, like, his biggest records. He had songs about him being an alien. Like, legit weird. He made cool Keith-type songs in terms of the conceit in which the song was written around. So that was big. Um, I think that opened up the lane for Kanye to be as weird as he wanted to be. And I think that that uh, Watch the Throne record, that's a very art rap album. And like, and, and it was literal in that sense because they're actually talking about a lot of like visual art and paintings and stuff. But then, like, Jay Z definitely takes it very literally. Yeah, but but you know, it, it was a it was a high expression of rap that was completely out of the bounds of the street expectation. And that I think you know those things in concert are kind of what opened up. You know, the lanes for everybody to be as strange as they want. Now you can have a young thug in a dress doing crazy rap styles. And he's, you know, one of the biggest artists in the world, you know, and, and he and manages to maintain all of the street cred, which you used to have to forego to do weird stuff. Get her in the way I drink, uncle, uncle, my ship sank. Get her in the way I think, have my troubles, my don't stink. Get her in the way I move, watch me groove, how I say my blues. Get her in the way I talk. My auntie still give God the glory, shot by the book depository. Never heard one of grandfather's stories, permanent sadness, constant mourning. 22 grandkids run an apartment, turn the stove. I want to ask you about professional wrestling for a minute before we're completely out of time. Sure, sure, sure. You're the co-host of a podcast that records in this very studio. In this room. Called Tights and Fights. It's about professional wrestling. I wanted to go sit in my seat over there. You told me. You know. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I don't understand what's good about professional wrestling. That's interesting that you don't. I know enough people that I trust – so you know that there's something there. I know there's something there. And, I mean, there's plenty of things that, I mean, 
nobody that I know understands why I like Babe 2, Babe Pig in the City as much as I do. So, <laughs> um, so for people who have never had a second thought about professional wrestling, what is it that appeals to you, a college-educated professional smart man? Let's take Vince McMahon, for instance. Vince McMahon is the owner of the WWE, the big wrestling uh, conglomerate. He's not just the owner, though. He's also a performer. And he's the head booker, which means he's the head writer. He has been writing wrestling television angles, storylines for performers every week of his life for the past 30 years. Like there's no off-season 52 weeks a year, they go out there in front of a packed arena. And these characters, a lot of times he's created or he's developed, go out there and try to do things that they think people are going to care about. Sometimes they care, sometimes they don't. And sometimes there's these magical moments of a character going out there and improvising something that defines their career for the next 10 years. And sometimes... Somebody goes out there and does exactly what Vince and the writing staff has written for them to say, and it gets over, and they use this term, gets over like a fart in church. Nothing happens, and some guys end up on a scrap heap. Some guys get fired because they're not getting over. Then they go to the independents and find some new gimmick and come back, and then they're made champion within a year because they figured it out. You know, it's live entertainment. It's choreography. It's so emotional it's so emotional and it's their job to predict what we're going to feel as fans to try to be in front of that a lot of times they're wrong but when they get it right it's really incredible when you can see an arena full of 20,000 adults that all know this is fake entertainment all have a real emotional moment where they're like happy for a character who has been beaten down for six weeks and finally figured out some way to defeat the villain. You know, it is, it is, I think it's a very substantive, substantive form of entertainment that ends up with a lot of crass elements just based on how often it has to be delivered. Um, and, and like, I think that it's, you know, because it's, it's it built essentially around physical violence. Yeah, absolutely. And physical pain. Absolutely. I mean, even the story of how it came to be is crazy. I mean, it, it used to be legitimate professional wrestling competition until like three or four guys who ran it figured out that if they built a certain guy up to win, then they could make more money. And then it was just a secret that it was fake. It, the you know like the referees didn't even know for years and then you know the the story of it becoming what it is now where like most of the people are fully aware that it's a work and still engaging in it it's like this really incredible form of entertainment that works on like all of these levels uh, to me it's just absolutely fascinating it's not that what you are describing is not that wildly uh what you're describing is not that wildly different from the aesthetic of hip-hop. Right. That hip-hop is about the relationship between a character and reality mm-hmm. um, and a storyline in reality, the tension between those things. Right. 
in a way that like when people say it's like a soap opera, a soap opera is a sort of grand fictional form, but it's purely fictional. And it seems like to me as an outsider, part of the juice of professional wrestling is the weird relationship between the fiction and the reality. Right. I mean, in a lot of these cases, your name could be Joe or Noai. Vince McMahon or somebody underneath him decides to name you Roman Reigns, and that is now your name. Like, nobody's going to call you Joe in the street. They're going to call you Roman, and you're going to answer to it because that is who you are now. Like, you can't take Roman Reigns as a gimmick and now put him on a different person. You can't do it because Roman Reigns is that guy. He's not this other guy. You know, and it's like the same with a rapper, right? Like, you can't take Open Mike Eagle as a gimmick and look and then just put it on somebody else. Like, no, there's a there's an authenticity that ends up happening where the human merges with the gimmick or the rap name or whatever it is. And now those are one. They're like inseparable that way. We'll wrap up my conversation with Open Mike Eagle after a quick break. Plus, still to come, the great Paula Poundstone. It's Bullseye for MaximumFun.org and NPR. Support for this podcast and this message comes from NBC, featuring the premiere of Megyn Kelly Today, a new morning show offering exclusive interviews, stories to inspire you, and the day's top news, along with thought-provoking conversation. If you're in the New York area and want to attend a live show, visit today.com slash mktodayaudience. Megyn Kelly Today, weekdays at 9 a.m. on NBC. It's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. We'll get back to my conversation with Open Mike Eagle in just a minute. But first, if you love Bullseye's film coverage, our in-depth conversations with filmmakers and stuff, well, I've got great news for you. We've got a new sister show here at MaximumFun.org that's all about the movies. It's called Who Shot Ya? It features the brilliant and hilarious stand-up comedian Ricky Carmona hosting, along with April Wolf and Alonso Duralde, who are brilliant film critics, And it is a sharp, woke conversation about what's going on in movies this week. They run through the news and then they get in-depth on a movie or a topic that's come up. It is really fun, really funny, and actually genuinely insightful. They are three brilliant human beings. I can't recommend it enough. So give it a try. Uh, It's easy. Just open up your podcatching software and search for Who Shot Ya, the new film podcast from MaximumFun.org. You're listening to Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. My guest is the rapper Open Mike Eagle. His latest album, Brick Body Kids Still Daydream, is out now. You know, hip-hop is this kind of identity play where you are choosing and asserting your place in the world. Yeah. In all Screaming its forms. It. Mm-hmm. In all its forms. Not just in, in, in music, but most obviously, you know, or most, most famously in music. Um, that you're like saying, I am this guy, mm-hmm. whether or not you are that guy. And and in a way, like what it's about is whether you can, as you said in wrestling parlance, put it over, right? Get over. Get over. Get, get over, over? Yeah. Get over. Yeah. Well, right? Get like over it's not really about how, like what's real about it helps make it work. Right. But at the same time, nobody was mad at Rick Ross for being a gangster rapper who was actually a corrections officer because... That just makes it more fun. <laughs> right. No, it's, you know, for the people, there were people who were mad, but they got drowned yeah. out by the people who were just, 
I mean, there's a lot of people who listen to Rick Ross who never listen to a word of what he says. Rick Ross is where he's at mostly because he picks the best beats ever. <laughs> you know what I mean? But and, he has a grand vision of who he is in the world. Of and that, that that People feel that. Absolutely. People feel it. And people feel like his, his image, everything he does, he upholds it. And he lives his gimmick like The Undertaker. He lives his gimmick. Like you're not going to catch Rick Ross out of character. You know what I mean? He lives his gimmick. And that, you do have to do that on that level. You can't you can't really have too much separation. And the thing is, like, like that's the difference between a character like that and a character like me. Like, I'm actively choosing in most senses not to play a character, but that also limits how much I can get over. Because, like, it would be like, you know, if... If my name was was Joe Jackson and not the singer, <laughs> but, um, you know, and I wanted to be a wrestler and I didn't want to put on a gimmick, you know, and I wanted people to take me seriously as and then sooner or later that becomes your gimmick. But that also is the thing when people are looking like, what are you what are you doing, dude? Like, this is not for regular people. This is for larger than life people. What are you doing? You know, and I'm kind of walking on that. I'm, I'm kind of doing that thing. Like, I'm I think that there's enough validity to people being themselves that they don't necessarily have to put on a costume to make like effective rap music. And I, sometimes I I think that like that's part of what um that's the limitation put on rap music that's not put on other things and it bothers me and it offends me sometimes. You know, that like in other genres of entertainment, people aren't expected to be such an over the top thing. Like like in, in other genres of entertainment, their mere existence and their talent is all they need. And I feel like that's ultimately when I say art rap, like that's what I mean. You know, and people like me and Serengeti and Bus Driver and Milo. And, you know, we come from this long lineage of people. But I feel like in the end of the day, we're like trying to assert the worth of our own humanity in rap music. Like that's where the the fight is. And that's why like I can't there's no person for me to fight because I'm fighting that, you know. And the only way to like the only way to advance is to do that and manage to do it in a way that connects that people can connect to that people can somehow like to be so self-indulgent that it becomes relatable (laughs) well open mic eagle thanks for thanks for taking the time to be on bullseye oh thanks for having me it's been a dream of mine great to have this conversation i'm glad that you finally achieved your dream of being on npr i'm so happy Open Mike Eagle. Go listen to his new record, Brick Body Kids Still Daydream. It's available to buy and stream right now. And if you liked his wrestling hot takes, I've got great news for you. You can hear even more of that on the podcast he co-hosts, Tights and Fights. It's part of our very own Maximum Fun Network. We'll have more information about that on the Bullseye page at MaximumFun.org. Or you can just search for Tights and Fights, your podcast software. Let's take a listen to one more song from Mike's new album. It's called Legendary Iron Hood. Black time got style, African pool. Got a brother named Charles, he be on that boot. I protect my neck with some magical jewels. It can't none of y'all take them from me. Yeah, yeah, 
and Cortez Cause I feel like fate begin my fit Got a head like the dome of a stadium You think it's all good, but it's really get great again Back it now, ladies, in the clearly Canadian Yeah, don't turn away from me, look at my eye hole Brother got heart, but he running with psychos He always got a gang with him, hella disciples They always trying to fight, though, but I stay cool I can't lose, no argument, I got my jewels I keep my head down, pushing like I'm walking to school Yeah, I hold him tight like infinity gems it's Bullseye. I'm Jesse Thorne. Artists, the people who make stuff, are often influenced by the stuff they see or hear. And, and sometimes that thing is so great they wish they made it themselves. It happens so often we made a segment about it. It's called I Wish I'd Made That. Today, you're going to hear from Paula Poundstone. She's a legendary stand-up comedian, been in the game since 1979. She's appeared on pretty much every talk show. She's had recurring roles on TV, dozens of specials. But this is NPR, and we're talking about Paula Poundstone. So we're talking about Paula Poundstone of Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. Paula, this week a bus driver in India was reprimanded for failing to collect a ticket from a passenger, even though the passenger was what? Mm, even though the passenger was a dog. Close. <laughs> a bird. Yes. What kind of bird? A uh, parrot. Yeah, back up. Uh, More common. Uh, e- a pigeon. Yes, a pigeon. I'm amazed you knew that. Of course I knew that. These days, Paula's working on a bunch of other new stuff, too. She's hosting a podcast called Live from the Poundstone Institute, where she interviews experts and academics in front of a live studio audience. She's also the author of a new book called The Totally Unscientific Study of the Search for Human Happiness. In it, she explores and tries out pretty much every trick in the book to live a happier life. Stuff like Taekwondo, reorganizing her house, and driving a fancy new car. When we asked her if there was any TV show or movie that she wishes she'd made... She had a quick answer. Bridesmaids from 2011. Maybe one of the best wedding movies ever? Anyway, take it away, Paula. The first time I saw Bridesmaids, I saw it in a movie theater with my two daughters who were, you know, probably one was early 20s and one was a teenager. I did not want to go see it. I don't know why I knew this, but I knew it was, like, related to somehow... This sort of um, frat humor kind of movies that sometimes don't do anything for me. I knew that it would it would be like a, a little bit gross, and I just said to myself, you know, I don't know, it's just not my type of humor. I said, but all all my ideas about how I wouldn't enjoy it pretty much fell away in the first scene, uh, the scene of uh, the character Annie, the Kristen Wiig character having sex with the the really boyfriend was so damn funny. It's all about her trying to sexually please this guy, and she was so damn funny in it. Her legs sort of dangling about. I'm not usually like a huge sexual comedy kind of a character, but this was just so... It's You know, Kristen Wiig just did it so brilliantly. <laughs> You slept over. I did. <laughs> I thought we had a rule against that. Oh. I'm kidding. Oh. <laughs> that was funny. You're funny in the morning. Wow, this is so awkward. I really want you to leave, but I don't know how to say it without sounding like a... It, probably the most notorious scene in Bridesmaids is the one where they are 
they've gone into the very fancy wedding gown place, you know, by appointment only, and everything is all white. Belle and Blanc, reservation name? Oh, I don't, I don't have one. We're just here to shop, just to try on some dresses. Okay, well, the next available appointment for bridesmaids fittings is in seven weeks. Absolutely no walk-in. And then they all have food poisoning, and they proceed to uh, throw up and have uh, uncontrolled bowel movements as a result. I mean, that alone would honestly not have done that much for me. But it was just what they were saying while it was happening that made it like, you know, a cut above. You know, I don't really care which dress we get. It doesn't matter to me. I just need to get off this white carpet. No, okay. No, not the bathroom. Everybody, go outside. I'm serious. There's a bathroom across the street. Oh, I think we have to talk about the plane scene. Because one of the funniest lines in the movie uh, ever said was in the plane scene. I'm not a good flyer, I'm sorry. I had a dream last night that we went down. Yep, it was terrible. You were in it. What? Oh, God. Sounds like something's happening. The character that the Annie character is very much in competition with is Helen. Uh, uh, Helen has usurped, or appears to have usurped Annie's role as the best friend of the bride. And this is during the story, is that you know, everything just keeps getting worse, but the biggest problem is that she, her friendship with her best friend is coming apart. Uh, so they're on their way to Las Vegas for the bachelorette party, and uh, Annie's afraid to fly. And she's also broke. And her rival, the Helen character, is rich. So the Helen character is sitting in first class with the best friend, the bride. And Annie comes up to say, oh, I'm so nervous about flying. And the, and the, uh, and the Helen character offers her some sort of, uh, you know, relaxant. I have something. Take two, you'll fall asleep, wake up, and we'll be there. Here. Ma'am, you're going to have to return to your seat, please. And then she says, well, these aren't doing anything. And so the Helen character suggests to her that she wash it down with some whiskey. And so there's, a, you know, a powerful combination of uh, inebriants now working. Two in. Good. I feel I'm so much more relaxed. Thank you, Helen. I just feel like I'm excited and I feel relaxed and I'm ready to party with the best of them. And I'm gonna go down to the river. <laughs> and so Annie makes her way up again to first class, where the really snooty uh, first class flight attendant, a guy named Steve, tells her that she has to go back to her seat. What do you say? Miss, you cannot be up here. Hello, Grandpa. <laughs> oh, this is a very. This is a very strict plane that I'm on. Welcome to Germany. As she walks back to the seat, there are, it's where, you know, first class has the silly curtains that go in between first class and the, and the rest of the plane. And she opens the first class curtains and she says, This should be open because it's civil rights. This is the 90s. Right. It's not. You're, you're in the wrong decade. You are. Okay, I am. You are. Thank you. Holy What did you give her? So brilliant. So funny. And then, I don't know, Mitch Silpa is the guy who plays Steve. And I must say, part of what was funny, as in so many uh, comedy performances, part of what was funny was how good Mitch Silpa was at being 
an Miss? Um, no, it's not me. Yes, it is you. Please go back to your seat. Yes, I'm with him. I'm, uh, I'm a Mrs. Iglesias. Uh, Mrs. Iglesias? Uh, no, you're not. You were just out here and you put sunglasses on. Out. But I don't want to. Sir, everybody go back to your seat. Okay, you especially. You have three seconds to get back to your seat. Oh, you can't get anywhere in three seconds. Well, you better try. You're setting me up for a loss already. Okay, thank you. I mean, part of what was joyous about that cast and those performances were just sort of how far they were willing to go. You know, the scene with um, Melissa McCarthy who comes in and Annie is depressed on her couch and hasn't, you know, gotten up and functioned for days. Uh, I don't have any friends. Um, the last you know time what I, I find interesting about that, Annie, here's a friend standing directly in front of you trying to talk to you, and you choose to talk about the fact that you don't have any friends. You know what I mean? No, no, I don't think you want any help. That's I think you want to have a little pity party. Oh. Yeah, I think Annie wants a little pity party. And uh, Melissa McCarthy starts wrestling her in this sort of psychodrama where she's pretending to be Annie's life. You're a Annie. My God, what are you doing? I'm life, huh? Life bothering you? I was a teenager in the 70s, so this... Part and I was a screwed up teenager. So this, uh, you know, this sort of psychodrama way of healing or breaking through is not unfamiliar to me, which is part of what made it so damn funny. And you won't do it. You just won't Stop do it. it. You stop slapping yourself. Stop slapping yourself. I'm your life, Annie. I'm oh. sorry. Nice hit. I- I've never been a bridesmaid, and I would never want to be one. I've occasionally gone to weddings, but that's as far as I can go. It doesn't sound like fun at all to me. You know, weddings cause problems. So the story is about the build-up to the wedding, not specifically about the wedding, but a lot of the problems that are caused by weddings, I think, are during the build-up. It's always somehow the guest list offends somebody. Somebody wasn't on the guest list. There are just always problems with weddings. I don't know why people have them. You know what? Why can't you just be happy for me and then go home and talk behind my back later like a normal person? I am happy for you, Lillian. I am very happy for you. I wish you well. I won't bother you anymore. Kidding me? Annie! Get back here! Stop! No, no! She does not get a party favor! She does not get a dog! Oddly, even though people tend to think of it as the movie where, you know, they throw up and, and, uh, you know, and and have uncontrollable bowel movements at one scene, it's also, it is layered. Alan just took over everything, and this has been really hard to do without you. I'm sorry. Nope. I'm sorry. Sorry I kicked you out of my wedding. It's my fault. No, it's my fault. I think I'm the one with the the mental problems. (laughs) Yeah, wasn't it my turn to be crazy? Yes. The bride's supposed to be crazy, right? You kind of stole all the crazy. I got crazy. <laughs> if I was trying to talk somebody going into this movie, I would simply say that I, in my opinion, it's the funniest movie ever made. I wish they would do a remake of it and have me in it this time. Paula Poundstone on the thing she wishes she'd made. 2011 movie Bridesmaids, starring Kristen Wiig, Maya Rudolph, and Melissa McCarthy. 
Paula's new podcast, Live from the Poundstone Institute, is up and going strong. Check it out on NPR One or wherever you listen to podcasts. Every week we like to wrap things up on Bullseye with a recommendation from me. It's the outshot. I'm going to tell you about my favorite thing. And I want you to know that this is not a fancy thing or a classy thing. This is a dumb thing. My favorite thing is a baseball card. It sits on my bookshelf. I can actually see it from where I'm sitting right now. It's from the 1989 Fleer set, one that came out right when I was the most obsessed with baseball and the most obsessed with baseball cards. And it was the holy grail back then. Billy Ripken, 1989 Fleer, number 616. Baseball cards and baseball card collecting are about order and completism, tables of statistics for sharp corners, finishing off sets. But some of the cards that people want the most are the ones that break that order. Error cards, ones with mistakes that were quickly corrected, like that upside-down airplane stamp that's worth so much money. And in the history of error cards, this is by far the best one. The error's pretty small. You have to look carefully to see it. I guess that's how it slipped through. I mean, it's like a few millimeters square. And the one that I had in childhood, over the error, there was a black box, like a literal opaque black box right over the knob of Billy Ripken's bat. Before the black box, which was pretty easy to find, there was one with just a scribble on it from a correction pen, and, and there was one with a white box. But I'm a grown-up now, and I've got the original, and it is near and dear to my heart. Because why did they put that scribble there, and then the white box, and then the black box? Why did they cover up the knob of Billy Ripken's bat? Because before Ripken headed out to the field in spring training, for someone to take his official portrait, somebody took a Sharpie to the knob of his bat. And so the base of the bat in his official baseball card photograph has face written on it. <laughs> I mean, I am ser I'm literally laughing right now just thinking about it. It isn't even a joke. It's just a swear word written in Sharpie on a baseball bat. But just picture it. There's this guy, handsome, smiling, all-American, right there on his bat knob. It says face. And then they put it on his baseball card. I mean, did Billy Ripken do it? Did one of his teammates, a clubhouse guy, the photographer, his brother, Hall of Famer Cal Ripken? Who cares? Best baseball card ever. It says face on it. Look, I am a great appreciator of order. I am a rule follower. But it's nice to have a reminder that sometimes it can be fun to give order and rules the old purple nurple. That's my outshot. That's all for this week's Bullseye. Bullseye is recorded at MaximumFun.org World Headquarters, overlooking MacArthur Park in beautiful Los Angeles, California. Uh, something pretty amazing happened this week on the lake. Uh, somebody was racing a fancy remote-controlled speedboat out there. Not something you see every day. Uh, certainly not something that the wildlife sees every day. They were not crazy about it. Sick wake, though. The show is produced by Speaking Into Microphones. Our producer is Kevin Ferguson. He had help from Christian Duenas and Casey O'Brien. Our production fellows here at MaximumFun.org are Nick Liao and Khalid Malim. 
Our senior producer is Laura Swisher. All our interstitial music is provided by Dan Wally. Our theme music was recorded by The Go Team and provided to us by Memphis Industries Records. If you'd like to hear any of our past shows, they're all free. Just go to MaximumFun.org. And while you're at it, check out the Bullseye page on Facebook. We've got a bunch more info about the show there, links to dumb stuff on the Internet. Like, uh, for example, I just posted a video of Oasis's Liam Gallagher making a cup of tea and swearing a lot. It's great. I don't even like Oasis. I guess that's about it. Just remember, all great radio hosts have a signature sign-off. Bullseye with Jesse Thorne is a production of MaximumFun.org and is distributed by NPR. NPR. 